This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, we're headed to Sun Valley, Idaho, an absolutely beautiful, natural place, and appropriately so because... On today's episode, I am super excited to welcome my friend, Russell Sproul, who is the founder and managing partner of Verta Ventures, which is an early stage climate tech venture capital firm. Hi, Russell. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Les. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, I've listened to listened to the podcast for a long time and excited to be on. So thanks for thanks for inviting me on. Well, I, I'm excited on multiple levels. I mean, number one, uh, your story is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. What a, what a, what a fun, uh, I don't know, roller coaster, what do we, roller coaster, pinball machine. I mean, you got a pretty cool background. What do you, what do you call it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny that when I was in the solar industry, it was the solar coaster, but I've been in a number of climate (laughs) tech industries. So yeah, maybe it's just a roller coaster. I don't. I don't know what's a good what's a good analogy across all the industries, but well, it's, been, well, it's been a fun ride nonetheless. Let's let our let's let our listeners be the judge. Would you mind kind of sharing it? I mean, take it back to the beginning, kind of where where you started and as far back as you want to go. Maybe even where you grew up might be fun. Yeah. Um, and just take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Grew up uh, grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut. And spent a lot of my childhood in the outdoors, which is really where I my love of nature grew. I went to summer camp. I spent a ton of time hiking and biking and skiing. Not surprisingly, I, I now live in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and I ended up going to college on the East Coast. And, and after college, I really had no clue what I wanted to do with my life, which a lot of college graduates don't. Uh, I ended up in sports television for a couple of years and had... Had a fun ride there, uh, but quickly realized after a couple of years that I wasn't super passionate about sports television. And I really wanted to find something that I was both passionate about and I felt like, you know, could make an impact on the world. And I really kind of rekindled my love for nature and the outdoors. And simultaneously, I was kind of learning about the challenges and opportunities around climate change. And so I really committed my career going forward to to climate change starting in about 2009. Mm-hmm. I went to business school for a couple of years to make a pivot. Uh, and then coming out of business school, I went to a company called SunPower, a very large solar company. I essentially made a rotational program for myself there. I worked across residential, commercial, and utility-scale solar. I was developing financing projects for folks like Verizon and Apple, um, worked on SunPower's residential channel, building a $200 million loan program for SunPower's residential customers, and had a lot of fun there, kind of seeing what a big big company environment was like in the climate tech space. But eventually got the, the startup bug and followed a mentor and, and boss of mine to a company called STEM, which was a pioneer in the energy storage space. Mm. And I spent a couple of years there. I joined when it was about a 20 person company. I spent a couple of years there, saw it grow to well over 100 people, uh, wore a number of hats again. And ultimately, I, I left there after a few years. And that company, a few years after that, went went public um, via SPAC back in 2021, um, which was which was exciting. And after STEM, I landed 
at is uh, basically a co-founder of a solar lending business that was within a regional bank. And we were one of the pioneers in the solar lending space, um, one of the top top lenders in the market when when companies like Solar Mosaic and others were getting going. And, and we were looking to kind of stand this business up and ultimately spin it out of the bank. Um, long story short, that didn't work out, but a lot of, lot of great lessons learned. Um, and I eventually landed after that at a company called Full Harvest, which is in the sustainable agriculture space. And we were building a B2B marketplace for imperfect and surplus produce mm -hmm. with the long-term goal to digitize the B2B produce supply chain, which is incredibly antiquated and offline and inefficient, which causes all sorts of waste and, and has huge, huge climate impacts as well. Um, and so I joined a business school classmate of mine, Christine Mosley, and I was employee number five, CFO by title, but essentially did everything but code over the course of about four and a half years there and helped grow that from seed stage to, to growth uh, from five people to over 60 people and, and great, great run. Definitely the most formative, formative experience of my career. Uh, and the, Meanwhile, and we can go deeper in Danny and all of these things. Meanwhile, I oh, we will. <laughs> can't wait. Yeah, <laughs> can't wait. Uh, I, I started investing about six years ago, very, very, very small checks into climate tech startups, and over the course of about six years, I built up a portfolio of about fifty early stage climate tech businesses, and I was having a lot of fun with that and spending, frankly, too much of my time, free time on that, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife. And eventually I decided that I, I wanted to do it full time. And I thought a lot about joining a firm, founding a firm, um, ultimately for many reasons, landed on on starting starting my own firm and um, launched uh, Verta Ventures last year, started working on it about a year ago and, and formally launched it in, in December of 2022. And we've made seven investments to date, and it's up and running. And I'm I'm having a blast, even more fun than I expected. And that's uh, that's it, the journey. It sounds like you're just getting started. I mean, what a what a wild ride! But like you're you're just starting to hit hit a real stride here. Exciting, man! It's great. Yeah, it's been a blast. What uh, I wanna we're gonna go. I'm gonna go way back and peel a bunch of stuff back because I mean it's just such a cool journey to hear you go from solar to storage to you know sustainable ag and then now investing. I mean, re really a great background and pedig pedigree to be doing what you're doing now. But you glossed over something that I'm really in the beginning that I'm really curious to to peel back. Did I hear that right? Sports broadcaster was it? Was that right? Not, I wasn't a broadcaster. Oh, okay. In sports sports broadcasting so i worked for oh NBC i see okay sports okay nbc sports on sunday night football uh and the 2008 cool. olympics uh, old program called the national heads up poker championship uh, i worked on a couple u.s opens which is which is timely given that that's happening right now yeah and and yeah had a lot of fun doing that super fun and like what what was pivotal? I mean, when a lot of people, I think you think, I think about a lot of people like, you know, you get into a career like that and you get the kind of access and the type of just the type of job gigs that you worked on. I mean, was that, was that hard to walk away from something that, that, that's that just that, that kind of front and center and cool and fun. It's interesting. I, I did have a lot of fun with it for most of my time. 
I think the, like a lot of industries and creative industries like that, the, it's a grind, um, like, mm -hmm. like any job, the pay is not great. And the pay is mm -hmm. not great for a really long time until you get to like the upper levels, mm -hmm. you're traveling, working nights and weekends. And I've always had a passion for sports and watched a lot of sports, played sports growing up, played sports in college. But when you're working on it, you kind of lose that, you know, at least for me, I kind of just lost that passion for it. It became a job. Um, a lot of the personalities that you deal with in professional sports, they're not the nicest of folks at the end of the day. Um, they're difficult to deal with. Um, uh, I'm watching the, the uh, by, great, but by the way, I just finished uh, the I'm caught up on my episodes. I was traveling last week of uh learning the whole Jerry bus story and the Lakers, uh, the Lakers journey, uh, that series. So I, I get it when I see like the character of Jerry bus, I'm like, wow. Yeah. There can be some characters in <laughs> sports it's, it's industry. Tough. It's tough. It's uh, you know, it's funny. Like the, the colleagues that I had were fantastic. I think it was the novelty of kind of interacting with professional athletes wore off pretty quickly when, sure. you know, it was a dime a dozen that were actually, kind individuals. Um, and whether that's because I was a, you know, lowly sports producer or what, what have you, um, they just, it, it wasn't that fun to be around them. Um, and, but the other thing was, I just, I, 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 once I lost the passion for mm -hmm. it, um, and I, I just wasn't, I wasn't waking up in the morning being like, all right, I want to do this for the next 10, 20, 30 years and mm -hmm. get to the top, try to get to the top of this industry. Um, it didn't feel like something that was particularly, you know, impactful. And I, I wanted to find something in my, in my life and career that, that was more impactful in the end of the day. So that was the, that, that combined with the novelty of being around professional athletes and sure. all that cool stuff on paper. Uh, once that wore off, it, it, uh, you know, moved, moved on to the next thing. Good for you. Well, I'm, I think we're all glad you did it because you, you, you're already on a, on a great trajectory and, 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 and having a real, a really solid impact on, on our world and our planet. So uh, good on you for, for making the decision. Although I, I do have to embarrass you one more time before we move on from this topic. You are most definitely the only guest we've ever had on the show that actually has not one, not two, but three Emmy awards. Is that right? That is true. Uh, right time, right place, right team. I was on, I got two for Sunday night football, one for the Beijing Olympics one of so cool a dozen or many dozen in some cases folks that got them but yeah yeah i got three emmys they're they're sitting behind me now and it was a it was a fun run and it's funny i actually retired retired from sports television the same year that john madden did uh recipes <laughs> um had, that's a great a, that's great bar trivia right there if if, if anybody yeah. ever gets that he gets that on a question night <laughs> he had a much longer and, and more distinguished career than I did and many more Emmys. But uh, yeah, we we hung it up the same year. Awesome. That's great. So what was you talked about a little bit how rekindled you're rekindling your love for nature and the outdoors at the time when you kind of decided to make this jump into into uh, in 2009. Was there any any sort of like monumental moment or piece of literature or documentary or anything that really kind of grabbed you? Like, was there a seminal event or was it just sort of a buildup of just kind of who you were and what you were passionate about really your whole life? Yeah, a little bit more of a buildup. I think ultimately it's funny because I was having a conversation recently with somebody who was talking about 
this epiphany moment when they shifted from a completely different career into climate tech and they had kind of an existential crisis around climate change and the environment and it all kind of hit them at once and they were like i can't even sleep unless i'm working on this problem and i did not have that um i it was a it was a build-up over the course of about a year and a half two years as i was exploring what i wanted to transition from sports television into and i started with just thinking about okay what else was i passionate about other than sports um and what and i came back to nature and i came back to the the natural world and the environment and i at the same time was just learning more and more about climate change and the environment and and climate clean tech as it was called at the time now now mm-hmm. rebranded to climate tech uh and both the challenges and the opportunities therein and those two things you know the passion and the impact combined uh i thought there were going to be a lot of business opportunities and there there were far fewer you know 12 15 years ago um mm-hmm. than there are now but there were there were definitely great businesses being built back then and far more today and so you know i thought there would be a, an economic opportunity there as well to to align that with my passion and, and impact so that was really the 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 trio of the passion impact and and kind of a, a career career path awesome and then the decision to get into solar first was that how, tell us a little bit more about like how did that opportunity present itself and then you know maybe uh, you know I, I i'm i'm certainly very partial to investors uh, that have operating backgrounds. I know that was my that was my path, and and I th- I felt like the best investors that I've worked with have similar paths. But what what uh, you probably weren't thinking about being an investor at the time. But as you kind of reflect back on that first experience, I'd love for you you know share some of the some of the lessons learned and some of the good takeaways that you know make you a great investor. Yeah. So the I'll start with moving into solar, wind. So during business school, I explored wind, solar, and advanced biofuels. And advanced biofuels, by the time I graduated in business school, I pretty quickly realized that advanced biofuels were not heading in the right direction. All the stocks of the companies that were public were tanking at the time. Uh, it was not a space that had a lot of funding going into it or or a, a good trajectory at the time. Wind, similarly at the time, the production tax credit was up for renewal that was on the it was on the fence whether or not that was going to go through so that industry was it was in a lot of turmoil um, but solar had a little bit more of a stable footing and so I wanted to I wanted to go to a place that had a kind of a, a clear trajectory of growth um, a sector and I ultimately landed at SunPower with uh, a great team on the East Coast. It's a it's a West Coast based company, but I landed with a great team on the East Coast, entrepreneurial team. Um, and of course, right after I joined, uh, my boss left to go to to one of our competitors, uh, and half the team followed him. So I was I was kind of alone on this island in the East Coast, and I eventually moved out to the West Coast uh, to join to join the team out there. And I spent my first couple of years in the commercial development uh, and finance side, building projects, financing projects for commercial customers um, like Verizon and Apple and others um, had a had an amazing experience, just really doing everything from sales to finance to the, the analytics internally to get the projects done. Um, loved that. Uh, there was a fair amount of bureaucracy with that um, and that continued throughout my time at SunPower. Kind of learning 
you know, doing 100 page PowerPoint decks, 50 versions of them. Um, <laughs> and did that did that in the commercial side, the the utility, the utility side and, and on the residential side. And um, I, I worked on a couple hundred megawatt project on the utility side, helping get that financed, which was a lot of fun. And then my last gig there was on the residential financial product side. And I, I ended up moving over there because it was it felt like the most kind of innovative side of of SunPower at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because SunPower has since been broken up into a number of companies and their residential, the company SunPower, there is just the residential business today. Uh, mm. And that business was growing really rapidly. They were building out financial products, uh, building out a software platform for the, the channel partners to use. And there was a lot of entrepreneurship going on there. Um, and so I had a lot of fun building a, a loan product uh, with with SunPower's residential channel. Learned a ton, but eventually the the hundred slide PowerPoint decks got the best of me, and I, I decided, you know, I need I need to get get to to a true startup. Uh, and so that was that was the catalyst to to move to STEM. Um, I see. And yeah. So interesting. So how would you? To, to do it all again, I mean, do you, would you, is that the path you would recommend? Like, do you, do you like to see entrepreneurs that have, you know, previous operating backgrounds, like before they actually try to just to jump in the deep end or do you, what, what, what's your perspective on that? In terms of founders that I invest in? Ah, or just, just generally, I mean, it's, it's obviously the path you took, right. But what do you, what do you think is optimal? I think it really, honestly, I think it really, really depends. I think in the in the climate space i generally believe that having exp operating experience working at at big companies um seeing what that looks like really getting a deep understanding of the industry is typically really really helpful in mm -hmm. this space um because those are the types of of players that you're going to have to be dealing with and working with and selling to and interacting with um it's not it's not like the pure kind of generalist tech industry where you're typically selling to other tech companies uh, and everyone kind of speaks the same language. Mm -hmm. It's still relatively, a lot of the climate tech sectors that I'm investing in and work with is still relatively antiquated compared to traditional kind of Silicon Valley tech companies. And so mm -hmm. I think having some amount of experience and appreciation for the sector or sectors that you're working in and working with is, is pretty important. And um, so typically that's going to be working at a, you know, midsize or large company, um, and really, really understanding the space. I think there, there are certainly exceptions to that. People that just come in super passionate, have some technical expertise that they can bring to bear, you know, bringing, bringing in that kind of disruptive outside mindset to the table. Um, and when I'm, when I'm looking at founders, I really love to see a combination of that, right? Somebody who brings some deep industry experience, and then somebody who's bringing in kind of a disruptive outside mindset and they can they can work together to figure out the optimal solution and figure out what what's needed to disrupt this industry but also where you have to you know play within the existing sandbox to get things done yeah that's that's a great perspective uh you know i think especially for our listeners that are that are interested in this topic and interested in, in starting a company in the space um so you mentioned you met you met your your co-founder for for stem was that in business school that or was sorry. That was school. that was uh, that was full harvest. Uh, oh, that was full harvest. Okay. Yeah. So how how did not how did Stem? 
Oh, yeah. that's right. Okay, so you, but STEM was a smaller, entre- more entrepreneurial kind of experience. So I see. So then you you dove into that. Yeah. Uh, and what was down from like large company to relatively small startup to very small startup in the with with full harvest. Uh, with the Got last it. Got it. And what was was STEM? I mean, that seems like it'd be a pretty natural progression. It's like you know, st- like the holy grail is like right is both collection and storage. Is that you know? And so was that kind of like the the second just the follow on phase of of what you saw in the solar industry? Exactly. In in storage, when I joined STEM in 2014, uh, 2015, I can't even remember. It's been so long. Storage was really seen as like solar eight or 10 years earlier. It was really nascent. STEM mm. was one of the only companies working in the space. Um, it was really interesting because STEM was founded to try to be a kind of software financing business, but they needed to do everything because no one else was really in the energy storage space. They needed to build their own hardware. They needed to Ugh. finance. They needed to develop their own projects. They needed to build the software. Um, and it ended up being a very, very capital intensive business for that reason. Um, and so learned, learned a lot from that experience, but that was a lot of the, the solar folks that had been in solar for, you know, 10 years or so were moving over to storage because that was kind of the entrepreneurial haven. Um, and over the last 10 years, storage has become very mature and it looks like solar was 10 years ago. And now you're seeing, now you're seeing those folks go into EV fleet management and financing and and software and things like that. That's the next generation of, of entrepreneurship and in, in the space. Yeah. Speaking of that, I'm curious, you know, I've heard, I've heard all kinds of creative solutions, like, you know, our cars are the future, like batteries of the grid and things like, I mean, there's all kinds of wild ideas out there, right? Like, but where do you have a perspective on where storage is going or, or how it like micro like how things will be managed or any, any kind of cool, fun, high level, just from, from your perspective on that industry? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on a couple things. I think there's so I'm the the fund that I'm building is focused on equity light, as generally asset light business models. That's going to be software marketplace mm-hmm. business model innovation. In storage, there's there's still a lot of innovation going on it with kind of deep technology trying to find more efficient, longer duration solutions to store energy the the de facto solution right now that is cost effective but not great for long duration is lithium ion batteries mm-hmm. uh, which are obviously in in electric vehicles as well um so there, there's there's definitely some really interesting things going on with trying to figure out longer duration storage more economically the you brought up kind of vehicle to grid in yep. that that part of the ecosystem my general take on that is that's that's more of a niche niche solution. I don't think you're going to see consumers wanting to use their batteries to regularly sell power back to the grid or things like that. Maybe occasionally it can help power their home if the power goes out. Mm-hmm. But that's on the consumer side, I think that's going to be pretty limited. The batteries are ultimately the most valuable piece of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And if you're using them not to drive the vehicle, you're you're just shortening their lifespan um, for what arguably is not going to be optimal use. Now, I do think there are areas where the utilities and especially fleet operators are going to interact a lot to say, mm. hey, instead of charging all 100 of your vehicles right now at a peak moment on the grid, let's charge them 
let's let's spread out when they charge, charge them at night, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think, especially on the fleet side, you'll see a lot of interactions between the fleet managers and the grid operators and the utilities. Um, how much, how much again, how much are they selling back to the grid and using their batteries to sell back to the grid? Occasionally for peak events, you might see that, but they're mm -hmm. not going to want to be doing that on a regular basis. Cause again, you're just, you're shortening the life of the battery. If you're charging and discharging it every day to service the grid rather than using, using it to, uh, to, to drive the vehicle. So sure. I think there's, there's a lot to be done there. Um, Verta is an investor in a company called Taiba, which is a, an amazing business, software business that is optimizing the development and operation of energy scale, uh, sorry, utility scale energy storage. Um, ah, and by the way, that's T, isn't it? It's T-Y-B-A, right? Taiba, T-Y-B-A. Yeah. 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 And is actually a founder that I, I hired at STEM back in 2015 and I followed mm. his journey uh, post-STEM until he founded Taiba. Cool. And they've built an amazing software platform, integrations, machine learning and AI to, to power it, to help developers, you know, site and size and finance their the utility scale storage, but more importantly, actually operate these batteries more efficiently and increase the revenues that you can get from these batteries. Um, and they have a whole long term vision around, you know, essentially becoming like the Bloomberg of of energy utility scale energy management and helping folks sell energy between you know one plant to another and it's gets very very wonky uh, to say the least but i think there's there's so much to be done on mm. the software side of energy storage um and how you optimize the batteries sure. uh, how you control these batteries and and integrate and operate them with with the grid more holistically yeah and and it's it's like uh i i think it's it, 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 most of us think of of batteries as like these dumb disposable things, right? Like you put them in your Walkman, to use a really <laughs> ignorant example. Um, but it's but you, right, like what like once you own an EV and you start to learn like how to optimize your battery's performance and optimize charging and like it, it's a really deep science, right? That we're just beginning to maybe unlock. So. Yeah. And, cool. and on the EV side, since you brought it up, the one really interesting thing is that people think about internal combustion engines and mileage as a really key factor in the wear and tear on the car and how mm. much life it has. And if it's a hundred that one car is a hundred thousand miles, another car is a hundred thousand miles, they're going to be priced about the same. Um, with an EV, all miles are not created equal, right? If you're mm. driving an 80 on the highway, to and from San Francisco and Tahoe every weekend, or you're driving 25 miles an hour in the city, that that use of an EV can lead to a very different lifespan for the battery. Oh wow! Uh, and so that's something that that you know the both consumers and the manufacturers are are figuring out, and the and the used car sales companies figuring out how do we how do we price these? Mileage isn't the key pricing mechanism, we need to go figure out what the state and the health of that battery is. Um, and so there's so many different things with with EVs and batteries that are that are completely different from internal combustion engines. And that's creating opportunities for for companies and business models to 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 flourish uh, as as we transition from from ICE engines to, to EVs. 
That's fascinating. I never, I never thought of it that way. It's like, yeah, the old days of like the odometer statement at the, at the uh, DMV. It's like, that doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah. We need to figure out this new science. That's cool. Um, what about, all right. So the transition from, I think that was a great set on, on energy storage and, and, and unique, that unique part of your career journey. What about the decision? You mentioned you're at B school, you, you meet this co-founder, but this decision to start your own thing with full harvest Tell us about that, the nexus of that, that whole, cause that's a whole different ball of wax when you're like, yeah, I'm going to do my own thing now. I mean, that's typically yeah. takes a lot. Yeah. Tell so us about I, it. I will, I will give all the credit to the the founder, Christine Mosley, who, who really founded the business before I got there. I was, a, I was an early hire employee number five. Um, so was, was there from the very, very early stages and Ultimately, it's interesting because I've now truly started my own thing with with the fund. And I at the time I was I was thinking about, you know, was was it a good time to actually start my own thing? And and did I have any great, great light bulb moments and ideas to to do that? Um, and ultimately, I, I reconnected with Christine and saw what she was building and was really just blown away by her vision um, what she'd built so far and, and where she was going with the company. And so instead of really starting from, from square one, I, I joined shortly thereafter um, and had a blast doing that. And I, I think the, the kind of the energy stretch of my career had, had a lot of ups and downs and had a, had a lot of, a lot of fun doing that. But I ultimately, I think was, was kind of burnt out from the energy sector and wanting to mm. explore another part of climate tech and climate tech between you know, when I really started in the industry and you know, 12 years ago to now has grown from really an energy centric kind of word, climate tech, it was all clean tech, it was all inter- really focused around energy. And now it's grown to touch every sector mm. uh, of the economy, you know, whether it's whether it's the built environment, obviously, agriculture, transportation, every part of our economy, climate tech touches in some way, shape or form. And as I was learning about the agriculture space, and considering joining Full Harvest, I learned that uh, food waste is has been measured by by some to be the number one contributor to climate change in the biggest way that we can reduce reduce uh, emissions if we if we solve food waste. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a big mission from Full Harvest. And again, the impact side, um, joining joining a, a founder that I knew well from business school, super exciting opportunity. Um, and yeah. And you, you, you called it. I think was it rescued produce? Is that right? Is that how you said it? Or imperfect or, and surplus is imperfect. Right. Imperfect and surplus. I mean, for lack of a better, this is like these are like ugly vegetables. These are like this is like every tomato that I grow in my own garden. They're ugly, but guess what? They taste amazing, right? It's it's yep. the same. They just don't look like the exact perfect apples that you see in the little cardboard styrofoam tray thing in the grocery store. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's a combination of a few things. So it's it's that for things like tomatoes and apples and um, a lot of, of fruits and vegetables, they're just misshapen. They're mm-hmm. they're um, you know they're they're not the right color. The grocery stores don't want them, um, and that's that's been decades and decades of of very specific specifications that the grocery stores and the retail uh, the retail industry has 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 created and has made so the the farmers try to try to fit the, to those specifications and anything they can't, they often end up throwing away or it goes to, you know, mm. animal feed or what have you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's another big piece, though. If you think about a great example that that I like to use is is lettuce. So if you go get romaine hearts at the grocery store, you you get a bag of three skinny romaine hearts, mm-hmm. and but a romaine plant is a big round bowl, and they actually cut off sixty to seventy percent of the plant, and they just leave it in the field, and they what they these in, in the inner stock of the romaine plant, um, and that's what they bag, and that's what they sell. And so you have this Why? huge round plant because that's that's what the grocery stores decided, you know, consumers wanted. Why um, don't we just start eating like the little sliver in the middle? It's all good, isn't it? It's all like tastes yeah, the same. <laughs> so this 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 is the this is what we were part of what we were trying to solve at, at Full Harvest. Um, and another another piece too is that so many farmers grow, uh, they contract grow. Uh, all or, or a significant portion of their field and they get contracts, they say, okay, we're going to grow the, grow this crop. We're going to sell it all or 75% of it to X, Y, and Z, you know, big box retail store. Um, and oftentimes though, the retailers, their buyers will say, hey, we actually don't need it this month. And uh... it's perfect. It's, it's perfectly looking. It's perfectly good for the grocery stores, but they just don't need it because they didn't, they didn't forecast their demand correctly. And they have so much power in the relationship that mm. farmers shit out of luck for lack of a better word. Wow. Um, while there are contracts, like what's the farmer going to do? Sue them. You know, they're, 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 they're their biggest buyer. And so yep. this, this happens a lot in the industry. And so getting, helping farmers increase the number of buyers that they can work with dramatically reduces their risk. If for some reason they have a contract fall through um, wow. And that's the other big piece that leads to a lot of waste as well. And and that, that Full Harvest was working on. Very cool. And what, so this was probably, were you, were you at Full Harvest like while the, when the, the pandemic was happening? Was that? I joined, joined in early 2018. Okay. Uh, we, we moved into our new office in 2019. We were there for less than a year before the pandemic hit. Um, we were growing the team rapidly. We ended up doubling the team size during the pandemic, hiring everyone wow. remotely. Not a not an uncommon experience. Uh, sure. Many many companies went through that. It was it was obviously very difficult, but we grew it. We grew a ton during that time, um, and we were we were actually able to help. I don't know if you remember hearing about all the all the you know milk and fruits and vegetables that were being dumped because so many of the traditional buyers were were yeah out of business or closing shop during the pandemic, we, we, we did as much as we could to help move that around and get it to the buyers that, that needed it. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was, why I was curious about it, because it seems like, I mean, what an opportune time to like, or a need, a need for this type of solution during, uh, during, during the pandemic. Exactly. Um, what about, so where on your kind of, uh, on your personal journey journey, are you at this time? Had you moved to, had you relocated to Idaho yet? Or what was the, so I had been, I moved to the Bay Area in 2013. I'd been there for a number of years. I joined STEM there, yep. um, ultimately full harvest there. I uh, met my now wife in early 2018. We got married in 2022, early last year. And yep. um, not long before that, we decided to move to Idaho, where my wife's from, born and raised in Ketchum. Um, and Beautiful place. It's awesome. It, it is. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so we moved here a little over a year ago. 
um, and have been, yeah, have been been in the Mountain West uh, formally for now a year. That's awesome. I got to tell you, I I've been all over the Mountain West and pretty much every small town hockey rink. You know, Salmon Idaho is one of my favorites because they have like a chain link fence instead of boards. But Ketchum is without a doubt my favorite favorite spot. It's 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 fun. It's super beautiful, super fun. I won't argue with that. Won't argue. With that. <laughs> That's great. Um, cool. So at what point, you know, it seems like full harvest is like full steam ahead. And then at what point did you, you, while you were there, you started doing just, you said some climate investing on the side as like more like a, an angel or what was the, yeah. So the, the flavor the really started when I left STEM, I bought my options, which turned out to be a great decision because they went, they went public a couple of years later. I, I yeah. invested in a couple of subsequent rounds with STEM and at the time, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I own equity in this early stage startup, still relatively early stage at the time. Yeah. And I said to myself, well, can I only do this when I work at an early stage startup? The answer is no. Um, this was right around the time that angelist syndicates were taking off. Mm-hmm. And really solid companies raising money through these syndicates. You could write really small, relatively small checks you know, as small as $500 in some of these, $1,000, $1,500. Wow. Uh, and so I started writing really, really small checks in through these angelist syndicates, did a dozen or so of those, having a lot of fun with it, saw hundreds of companies, chose to invest in a handful, um, saw that as kind of my education in yeah. investing. I started to meet friends and former colleagues who were starting to come companies um, started to reconnect with them. They were raising their first rounds. They were accepting relatively small checks directly on their cap tables. Um, So my check size increased a little bit, still very tiny. Um, And I just, I just kind of graduated from angelist syndicates, thousand dollar checks to slightly larger checks directly on cap tables, getting more and more involved with companies as a, you know, informal or formal advisor, um, and over the course of about five or six years, built a portfolio of about 50 companies. It's unbelievable. And, but what, what did you said it though? Like what an incredible education. I mean, and what a, what a playbook. I love, I love your playbook for how you did it too, because I think sometimes people think even, even if they have, uh, you know, a really decent kind of windfall, they immediately start writing those big checks. It's like, why you're learning, right? <laughs> Write the small checks, while you're learning, because they're much more forgiving, right? Um, it's it's a great, just a great playbook for folks that are interested in getting into this industry. And and I would even, I, I would love to ask you too, what advice, you know, quite often we meet founders or we meet operators that are like, I'd love to get into the, you know, get into the investing side. What do I do? What's the path? Do you have any specific kind of, you know, rules of thumb or these are the three things I'd recommend if you're interested in becoming an investor, that kind of stuff? It's it's a great question. I don't have any any I'd say there I don't have any unique advice. Uh-huh. What I would say is there's there's really not one path to being a VC investor. That that's really what I've learned over the years. You've seen some of the most successful VC investors in the history of VC were former reporters. Michael Moritz at Sequoia, he was a reporter. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, obviously a number of very successful operators have made the transition you have folks that grew up in the industry, you know, did their MBA, associates, and and stayed on to become partners and general partners. Um, I think there's there's no one path. I think it's 
probably the only the only investing sector that I know well where there there isn't a tried and true path to to just kind of level up into the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's if you'd asked me five years ago where I was going to be today, I, I wouldn't have said you know I would have definitely started my own fund and this is what it would look like. I I, I wouldn't have foreseen that. And I think that's true with a lot of VCs and and yourself. I mean your your story. You're obviously an operator. Um, and, and ended up becoming a, a VC, but I don't, I don't think there's one path. I think, you know, explore and, and if it, if it feels like that's really what you want to do and you really, really, really want to be an investor, um, you know, go try it out. And, and a lot of, I, I've seen a lot of, uh, operators go become investors and they go back to operating. It's like, nope, it's not, it's right. not I, mean, I, 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 yeah. I want to, I want to be heads down on one opportunity. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's no easy answer there. I think that's a great answer. There is no, there is no path. There is no easy answer. Uh, what about, I want to, I want to spend some time, uh, before we're out of time, t- t- I want to learn more about Verta, maybe the name, start with the name and then just tell us some more detail about the strategy. What's getting you excited. Feel free to highlight some of the, some, you, you already highlighted one, but if there's others, I'd, I'd love to just hear more about the current fund and what you're up to. Absolutely. I'll start with the name, which is not a very interesting story. A uh, combination of alliteration. I love alliteration. Um, Verta, Virtue, a little bit of wordplay there. Sure. Uh, and it was a cheap URL and, and no, one, <laughs> no one had trademarked the name. So I love it. And it's short. I mean, that is a great, that is a great one. Because it's short. Yeah. So yeah, and and it's it, it works. It works. Uh, rolls off the tongue relatively easily. So that's the that's the thoughtful thoughtful story behind the name. Love it. And the the strategy really builds off of of my angel investing strategy. I've, I've invested in on the angel investing side. I invested in all sorts of different climate tech companies, from hardware to software to fintech. Um, and I the the companies that have done the best and the ones that from angel investing and the ones that I leaned into most tended to be more software centric business models, marketplace, mm. SaaS, business model innovation, those types of things. That's where my career kind of uh, moved towards over time to FinTech and marketplaces with full harvest and more equity light business models. And so that's where I have the most comfort and most experience from an operating perspective. Um, my overall thesis is also aligned with that in the sense that I believe that most of the deep tech hardware innovation that we need to solve our climate challenges exists mm-hmm. today. Solar, oh, wow. wind, energy storage, EVs, all of these things, the costs have declined upwards of 95% for, for something like solar over the last decade or two, mm-hmm. wind 70% in the last in the last 10, 15 years. EVs have come down and cost a lot over the last, last 10 years um, and are continuing to, and, and energy storage has come down massively in cost. And so these, a lot of these hardware technologies have come down in cost. They've been largely commoditized. Um, and now we really need to scale, scale these technologies, finance them, operate them more efficiently, find better, better, uh, more revenues for them, uh, and get them in consumers and businesses' hands with, with less friction. And I believe there's a ton of software-centric business models that can do that. And these industries are large enough to build billion dollar, $10 billion software companies around. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's really where we're focused. So it's a combination of, of the thesis, my operating experience and background, and a lot of the learnings from the angel investing. 
um, that I've combined to to build the strategy, which again is kind of equity light business models across yeah. energy, transportation, the built environment, and food and ag. Super compelling, great, great strategy. Uh, what about how would you say? Uh, other than the strategy, which I think is is very, very cool and very unique, what else makes you different? How else do you differentiate yourself from other VCs and even you know other climate tech VCs that are out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's two two big ways. Uh, number one, I think is the, is the most unique, in, especially for a climate tech specific investor, is we like to come in and, and essentially be the, the kind of executive coach for these really early stage founders until they raise a, a large seed or a series A and they have the capital to afford uh, afford a, a expensive and, and high quality executive coach. Um, and this is mm. something that I know has come up in a lot of your recent conversations. Yes. Podcast on executive coaching. Uh, I've, I had an executive coach when I, when I started and still do when I started at full harvest in 2018 and still have that mm-hmm. executive coach shout out to Seth, Seth Weissman, my, my wonderful coach. Awesome. Um, and I, I learned the value of that firsthand. Um, I was doing some coaching on the side for the last few years before launching the fund. And so I like to come in and really act as, as a coach, um, for those earliest stages where where the founders needed and some for some founders that's way more hands-on than others depends sure. on their experience and background maybe they already have a coach um so it really it really depends and takes on a lot of different flavors but that's probably the most unique thing that we bring from a climate early stage climate investor perspective number two which isn't as unique but is still relatively unique is the deep networks in the areas we're investing and having worked in solar and energy storage and ag tech um, and sustainable ag, we we have really deep networks in the areas we're investing in. And a lot of our colleagues have gone on to you know work in the electrification of transportation and the other sectors that we're investing in. And so those networks have helped us helped us find talent for our portfolio companies, helped us find customers for our portfolio companies. Um, somehow I have a number of connections into uh, large and some of the largest car dealerships in the country. So some of my EV mm. investments, um, I've, I've connected to them. So we've, we've been able to find connections for our portfolio companies across the sectors we're investing in. Um, and I think for the, for the check sizes that we're writing, we we're punching above our weight. In Sounds terms like of it. Writing. It's great. I mean, what, what more could you want from an early stage VC that like help coaching and the relationships? That's what it's all about. Very cool. Uh, what about, I know you, you, you highlighted, uh, was it Taiba a, a little bit? Yep. Um, anything else that, you know, shout out, I know you've invested in a couple stealth companies. We won't be talking about those today. Uh, but anything else that you just want to give a shout out to or any other really kind of unique, unique investments that you've, uh, you've made in the, with this fund? Yeah, my, my latest investments in a company called Amber, and they are coming back to our conversation earlier around the difference between internal combustion en- engines and EVs. Amber is building kind of a full stack extended warranty product for EVs, both both the, the warranty product and kind of servicing and building up the supply chain mm. for that. Um, and so it's it's kind of a fintech and sure tech play. Uh, and their whole thesis and, and my thesis is that Again, the historic infrastructure for internal combustion engines from a warranty and servicing perspective doesn't really port over well 
to EVs. And so they're building an EV focused extended warranty product and servicing engine. I've known the founder, one of the co-founders, Joe, co-founder CEO for for four years. Uh, His partner went to business school with my wife and uh, got to know him for a long time. And and he was working in the fintech space when as soon as I saw him, him working, move over to to found a climate tech company, I, I reached out and and was able to to invest in him. So that was that was my latest investment. They just came out of stealth a month or so ago. So really excited about that one. And very cool. Is part of a, a broader ecosystem of kind of EV EV transition companies that are helping helping that transition across both the consumer um, as well as fleet space. Fascinating. I mean, uh, we'll put the link to your website in the show notes, but I mean, I'm, it's, I'm sure the portfolio companies are there. It just seems like a really fun category to be investing in. I mean, all these investments sound super interesting to me. Uh, yeah. So very, very been cool. A blast and great, amazing founders. At the end of the day, most of the due diligence is on the founders and the founding team. So sure. shout out to all the founders because they, they're doing the hard work and, and they're, they're really who I'm investing in at the end of the day. Absolutely. Are there pockets? Like if we were to say, like paint the national landscape, like are there pockets? I know you you don't have a regional thesis like we do, but like, are you finding density of these deals in one place versus others? Honestly, all the traditional places, it's, they're still, they're still pulling a lot of the best talent. Um, yeah. I'm seeing some of the re- relatively more recent pockets of like Austin and Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm starting to see more and more startups. I have I have a portfolio company in each of those. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, a ton in the Bay Area. Meeting companies, Pacific Northwest, um, New York, Boston. Um, so a lot, a lot of the traditional pockets. Sure. I think I think as the thing, one of the things that I I think about is especially at the earliest stages. I think it's really hard to build a remote first company, um, and so given that a lot of the talent is still in these pockets. Yeah. I think that's where you're going to see most of the best companies built. Um, places like Denver, obviously, are starting to build really, really solid, solid startup hubs. And and there are more more cities that are that are popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it ultimately comes back to a lot of the traditional spots. Great. What about, are you seeing anything in, uh, like coming out of national labs or are there any, any programs or anything that are encouraging, like out of DOE labs or anything like that? Yeah. Great question. Um, one of my, one of my advisors, uh, is running a, a program called lab start that's connecting climate technologies out of national labs with, with diverse and underrepresented founders. So great oh. entrepreneurs that may not have, uh, an idea and, and, pairing them with technologists and technologies coming out of the national labs it's a program called lab start uh, deepa who runs is fantastic one of one of my advisors and so they're looking at all the national labs obviously there's a few of them in the rocky mountains like nrel in, in colorado and mm-hmm. national lab here in idaho um, but but more holistically all the national labs have a ton of technology that really struggles to commercialize and get out of the labs and so She's doing the lab starts doing the really, really hard work of mm-hmm. matching those founders and technologies, helping work through the process of getting them out of national labs. And that's an area where I'm I'm looking to hopefully make a few investments um, in cool. some of those companies that that she's helping get get off the ground. So I'm excited about that. Haven't made an investment there yet, uh, but hopefully, hopefully will soon. 
That's that's super exciting. Uh, we're just about out of time. I got two more questions to wrap up, though. Uh, first, I just want to say, uh, Idaho. Uh, there's 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 people are always asking me like, what's going on in Montana? What's I want to ask you? What's going on in Idaho? Although I'm, I think I might see you next week. Actually, by the time this episode airs, it'll be uh, it'll be over. But the the Seed to Growth Conference is coming up. I know that's exciting. What about what can you tell us about an institution or an organization that you started called the uh, Climate Tech Clim- Climate Tech Sun Valley? What what is it? Yeah, really small organization. We're really kind of an informal group of of passionate local folks that are in or interested in climate tech, and we we climate tech as broad as that 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 can be. We we've run a number of speaker series over the last few years, ranging from local sustainable building and building codes to local sustainable agriculture to bringing in investors and companies like a company called Hempitecture and Maddie Mead, who runs that, which is a local company here out of Ketchum. Um, So we're really just trying to bring together the local community, get people that are interested, more informed, get the people that are in the community already to be connecting and talking to each other. Um, So we've, we've been running a number of speaker series over the last few years and and that's been that's been a ton of fun and frankly a way for me to to build my own community here yeah relatively new to town so it's been it's been a blast that's great we'll have to put a link to that in the show notes as well if you're listening and um you know lastly I, i'm just curious kind of a more personal question a more philosophical question i guess you know at, at someone that has grown up with this affinity for nature and and love of the outdoors i'm just curious what role you believe technology and innovation will play in preserving and restoring uh, our environment for future for future generations to have that same experience if it's not everything it's it's close to everything like technology and innovation more broadly is going to be the key for us to solve climate change and keep our environment uh, as uh, you know, sustainable and regenerative, and regenerative and resilient as it can be, so we can keep enjoying it. So I think there's there's obviously a lot of boots on the ground, you know, get your hands dirty solutions that need to be implemented. But whether it's financial innovation or technology and software innovation or hardware innovation that can help drive that, um, I think their innovation is is the key throughout that, and the level of technology may vary in the solution, but it's it's going to be critical to to us solving these challenges. I thought you might feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> Russell, as someone you've been a phenomenal guest as someone that uh, has has had a just an incredible path and is is it could ever be if there could be somebody more well positioned to be investing in cl- in the future of our our world, our planet and climate technology, I, I can't imagine what what that story would be other than yours. So I just want to thank you for sharing it today. And uh, to, to conclude, if you could just kind of tell our listeners where they could learn and find more out about you and Verta online. Yeah, feel free to connect with me uh, on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email at russell at vertaventures.co, not .com, .co. Uh, or, you can, or you can go to my website, vertaventures.co and, and find me there as well. Thanks, Russell. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.